We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, outs, and nitty-gritty so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... Ed and Lorraine Warren. Who are Ed and Lorraine Warren? Well, they're a husband and wife team of supernatural investigators. They've been involved in high-profile cases like the Amityville Horror, the Annabelle Doll, and countless other ghostly sightings. They made so much of a name for themselves as seekers of the otherworldly that they even opened up a museum in their New England home in order to display all the purported haunted relics and paraphernalia that they came in contact with over the course of their nearly four-decade-long career with The Unexplained. In a world dominated by ghost hunters and reality TV shows, Ed and Lorraine Warren were the first Christians who hunted spectral phenomena. They used their faith and ghostly experiences to help people from all walks of life. Only issue being, they were hiding a dark secret that involved pedophilia. We're going to make up with all three episodes of Chris Hansen in the eyes of the QAnon people. We're going to win back our Q badges. Carnival of wigs and frilly collars. On the surface, Ed and Lorraine seem like kindly grandparents that you would casually meet at a family cookout. They have a sweetness and gentleness that's unassuming and unassertive. And it's this simple, placid civility that no doubt allowed them to succeed in their chosen field. An area of the world that's filled with black fingernail polish, fractured psyches, and individuals lusting for violence. The plain-as-day fact that Ed and Lorraine were, for lack of a better term, normal people, is almost the very point of their existence. There's a theatricality or bizarreness to people that showboat around as ghost hunters. They have a knack for the limelight. They thirst for the... That's fucking weird. A ghost changed your script. (laughs) They have a knack for the limelight. They thirst for the ability to stand in front of an audience and tell tales from the great beyond. There's an operatic nature to the very pursuit. You're by definition saying there's more to existence than the here and now. You have to have a sense of showmanship to pull this off. Just standing on a corner and saying, yeah, I saw a ghost once, isn't going to spawn a media empire. It's not going to convert the non-believers into potential foot soldiers for your mission. Ed and Lorraine being the exact opposite of this, coupled with their faith was the perfect solution. It was exactly what was needed to convert the I don't know about this whole ghost thing crowd onto their side. They could have also been helped by opening up a giant skate park slash arcade slash dojo and getting um, a young Sam Rockwell to help them recruit their foot soldiers. I just rewatched that movie on my birthday and it fucking owns. Yep, it really does. 
Simply put, their calm way of speaking allowed them entrance into the inner sanctums of the paranormal. Edward Warren Miney was born September 7, 1926. Lorraine Rita Morin was born January 31, 1927, and they were both born in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Ed was an artist, light medium, and self-professed demonologist. Lorraine was a medium. The two worked closely together for their entire lives. Coupled with their Christianity, the pair was able to insert themselves into just about every major ghost story or paranormal story that happened in North America over the last 50 years. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Seekers of the Supernatural. I'm your moderator, Tony Spera. Tonight, speaking about <laughs> I love this so much. Seekers, Tony, Tony Spera is, oh, I love it so much. <laughs> so Tony Spera is, he's Ed and Lorraine's son-in-law, and he is a black hole of charisma. He is. Like, he is so boring to watch that he laps himself and becomes an oddity where you're just like, how is one person completely devoid of anything interesting about them himself? He was trained in charisma by J.J. Arms. <laughs> yeah. So basically, they the, the Warrens were very media conscious, and they had a public access TV show for a while, and Tony Sparrow hosted it, and they had these kind of you know, uh, topics where they would just get together and they'd be like, today we are talking about zombies. And then they would talk about how, oh yeah, I saw a zombie here and I saw a zombie there and I, I did it. Today we are talking about ghosts. And so this specific episode is them uh, talking about vampires. It's so funny because like, they're so blatantly just normal people. Like, this is how my fucking Uncle Sonny talks. I love, I just need to talk about the fact that Tony Sparrow is sitting with eyeshadow on, making a steeple, you know, gesture with his fingers and nodding intently like some sort of like evil genius. Reclining back way too far in this chair. And so they're, they're talking. <laughs> just, it just right sounded now, like talking. impatient. And they're all just eating lobster rolls this entire time as they're talking. It's just so funny. Like, I just love it so much. I watched, I've watched so many of these. It's like a halfway interested friend humoring your story. He's like falling asleep. Round consecrated. And then they dug up the grave again. And this time, when they opened it up, inside was a corpse that looked as though it had been buried for many, many years, just a skeleton. The coffin itself had greatly deteriorated. Mm-hmm. At the time, it made quite a hullabaloo in the newspapers, and people wondered, was this a vampire? Well, it was a vampire. Let's stop watching this video. How do you make a, a description of fucking vampires boring? Bro, for real, right? Like, they're, they're just, they're not cool people at all, which is so crazy because they're saying, they're saying these outlandish things like they claim to have seen ghosts and fought zombies and killed vampires and like had real you know real life chucky dolls try and kill them and it's just like uh i who falls for this there's everything about them is just like your your religious aunt and uncle just normal people that like visit for thanksgiving and talk about fucking the 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 patriots game except for he's like yeah you know the the vampires when they actually bite you the 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 blood that they suck out of you it 
you know, they store it in their in the folds of their neck. And then they, you know, as long as they have the blood in their neck, then they actually have control of your soul. And so as long as the the, the neck blood is in there, then, you know, they can control you like a like a zombie. You have to actually, you know, the stake in the heart doesn't actually work. You have to actually behead them and drain the blood from their neck in order to regain your soul. It's just like your uncle recapping some amazing play in a football game, except for he's saying that. Yeah, it's and I, I, yeah, it really is. It, it's funny because you were, you know, you talked about them as, you know, like your Christian aunt and uncle. And I've said a couple times about their faith, their faith, their faith. But I just want to drill down to that in, for a second. So what separated them from basically every other paranormal investigator, charlatan medium that came before them is all of those people, um, they, all of those mediums, they were spiritualists. You know, there's a big movement in, in the, um, t- around the turn of the century to about mm, the 1930s. Um, where spiritualism was a really big thing, where mediums and tarot readers and people who would use uh, uh, Ouija boards could purportedly contact the great beyond. All of those people um, kind of were these charlatans and grifters that bubbled up through society to take advantage of people's existential needs because of um, growth in um, financial prosperity and... Um, the kind of traumas of the day that were manifesting, right? Um, yeah, they were, they were op- opportunistic steak oil salesmen. Totally. And there was this, um, kind of like whole cultural ecosystem that took advantage of these people, but they, the only precluded value is that the person being taken advantage of believed in the otherworldly or believed in the great beyond, not in a Judeo Christian sense, but in a like ghosts and aliens way. The Warrens were a big step in a different direction in that they were also charlatans and they were also liars and they were also these kind of snake oil salesmen grifters that would take advantage of people that were in traumatic situations, but they did it by using Christianity. So they would almost kind of like insert themselves into uh, Christian ecosystems, find people that had problems and then be like, have you thought about ghosts? Because Jesus, also a weird zombie ghost guy. Mm. And so they would like, there were this very, you would think incongruous combination of um, devoutly Christian, longtime married, conservative, older couple that also said batshit crazy stuff like, yeah, vampires exist and they keep your blood in their neck rolls. And it's totally cool. Yeah. And also, I've, I, I don't know if this is the right time to talk about this, but... I, it's so, it's so interesting to watch. So, you know, you, I'm not the first one to make this observation. I forget where I really heard this from, but to watch the conjuring movies and the conjuring movies. I mean, I, I like, I like the conjuring. I like the first conjuring. I like the second one. I don't even remember if there was a third one. I saw the first two, but somebody have made the observation that they're not, they're, they're less horror movies and more Christian superhero films. And they really are like the, the first one is like an origin story. And then the second one is like literally just like, we're fucking fighting the devil as superheroes. And it's a love story. It's like, it's like, it's like got some horror trappings. But it's just like it's this romantic Christian superhero film about these two fucking supernatural heroes. And it's it's so interesting to watch those movies and see these people almost literally deified 
of just like they're just saving the world like they're they're the last line of defense against the evil that's creeping into our world from hell and then you actually see people have that sentiment in real life where people will post stuff about the real life ed and lorraine and be like did you know that the people from the conjuring are real people and people sharing that and being like these people are heroes and stuff like that that contrasted with the reality of the situation which is that they were fucking liars and con artists it's the widest gap of cognitive dissonance between a movie depiction of somebody and who they were in real life that i can think of and also the fact that there are movies is something we're gonna talk about in just a second because that is not by accident. Like, it's not like they just did these things and then people found out about it and then the movies got optioned or the rights got optioned and then it got turned into a movie years later. There's a, I'm not even going to say, we're going to go through a brief summary of the kind of like the biggest and the best cases in air quotes that Ed and Lorraine were involved in in real life. And that will then segue us into this topic of the movie adaptations of their life and the various things that have happened. So in no particular order, the first one is um, one that probably a lot of people are familiar with, the Annabelle story, which was um, basically a possessed Raggedy Ann doll that came to life in the Boston area and assaulted um, two nurses that lived together. And then one of the nurses' boyfriends came over, the doll threw him across the room with psychic ability, and then Ed... Warren was like, he found out about it because they had a priest go over there and try to do an exorcism on the doll. And the priest uh, got so freaked out that he fucking left. Um, and Ed found out about it, drove down there and supposedly made a deal with the doll, took the doll back to Connecticut and kind of housed it in their museum of horrors. Um, and so this Annabelle doll is a very kind of mythologized story in both the story of the Warrens and then just generally in terms of like haunted spooky shit that happened in America. Um, people like to talk about Anna Annabelle. Um, the Amityville Horror, which a lot of people are probably familiar with because there's been a ton of movies made based on or inspired by it. Uh, the very Crib Notes version is the evil spirits uh, possessed a family um, that killed itself. They, they basically... A family killed itself in the house in bizarre ways that no one could quite figure out why it happened. A second family moves into the house and all this weird shit happens where there's flies that are always in the areas where the various family members were killed. Um, uh, possessions start happening where people start being possessed by the purported ghosts of the, the deceased family members who killed themselves. Um, long story that is very nuanced and interesting in its own way um, and will be very important, which we will come back to after I read this list. Please don't let me forget Andrew. Amityville Horror is where it starts. Ed and Lorraine go down there at a certain point and they film a news broadcast at the Amityville Horror House, um, basically trying to prove that there are otherworldly th things that, that happened there. The Enfield Poltergeist, Ed investigated a poltergeist that haunted an English suburb that haunted the English suburb of Enfield, which was chronicled and adapted and it's loosely inspired uh, The Conjuring 2. Yeah, and there's also, there's a, uh, I mean, it's not the best in the world, but it's better. I thought Conjuring 2 was okay, but there's actually a mini, a British miniseries adaptation of this story called The Enfield Haunting that majorly downplays Ed and Lorraine Warren's involvement in it, which I think is more in line with the truth that they really, they just kind of went there and were like, what's going on? And they were like, get the fuck out of here, you American weirdos. 
but it's a mini series that's more in depth about the story and it's a lot better uh cheyenne johnson a man who killed his landlord and then claimed it wasn't his fault because he was possessed by a demon which will be adapted in 2021 as the conjuring the devil made me do it the snedeker house um they investigated a funeral home that ed then claimed was infested with demons which was adapted into the movie The Haunting in Connecticut. Um, they were involved with the Smurl family, uh, which is kind of um, about a, a, a haunting in Pennsylvania uh, of Jack and Janet Smurl. The Snedekers and the Smurls, huh? <laughs> and they they call the Warrens, and uh, the Warrens end up going there and then investigating it, and then it gets a book deal, and then it gets that book, then gets adapted into a TV movie called The Haunted. Um, so the question is, have you spotted the grift yet? Their investigations are the equivalent of Ernest Klein writing Ready Player One so that he can immediately option it into a movie that he can write, even though he ended up not writing it, I don't think. But that was his plan originally. He, co- he got co-writing credit, yeah. The answer is yes. So basically, they were friends with a lawyer, and this lawyer was the lawyer of the family that moved into the Amityville Horror House. And they started seeing all this weird stuff and they contacted the lawyer. No one's ever said this publicly, but like you read between the lines and they contacted the lawyer to see if they could get out of buying the house because there was weird stuff in the house. And the lawyer who was connected with people in Hollywood basically pitched to the people who owned the Amityville Horror House, specifically the, the father of the family, look, how about you just say the house is haunted, The Exorcist just came out, that was based on a book, I have a guy who will write the Amityville Horror novelization based off of all of the stuff that you've been through. We'll get it published, and then I'll be able to sell those book rights to Hollywood to make it into a movie. Everybody's... What a left-field counterpitch. Can you imagine that? Just like, hey, can we get out of this uh, lease? Okay, how about this? So somebody's going to write the book and then we option it as a film and then you are rich. So the crazy the crazy thing is that has basically been confirmed about the Amityville horror stuff. Like it's it's basically common knowledge at this point that like everybody signed a contract up front the writer got X amount of money. He wrote the book. He actually was pretty disgruntled about the fact that he didn't make as much off of the book royalties as he thought he was going to and blah, 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 blah. Uh, there's a whole documentary on it. Um, but during the, the, this whole process, Ed and Lorraine, as I previously mentioned, went to the Amityville Horror House and I, and they were there as part of a local news crew to attempt to disprove that the house was haunted. And to my knowledge, they had never had the idea to do this kind of like IP mining ghost story thing. Uh, But they met the lawyer there and they met the people who were at the Amityville Horror House. And then they kind of stayed in contact with all these people as the Amityville Horror phenomena happened. And that's I don't know this for sure. I'm just putting two and two together. This is where they figured out oh, we just need to like keep records and then we can hire people to write books based on these things and IP mine them in air quotes mysteries that we're selling. And it fucking worked. Like they did it over and over and over and over again where they would travel to a place, meet somebody who was either pulling their own con because let's be real, most ghost stories that reach this level of popularity, they're not just like, 
your aunt seeing an apparition in the hallway that one time and having a funny party trick. Like, they're full-on committed to a bit to do something. You know, whatever that is, whether that's to seem like a more unique and interesting person, to make money, whatever the reason is. And so Ed and Lorraine develop this system where they travel around the world going to these places, inserting themselves in these stories, and then getting them turned into novels, and then getting the novels adapted, and getting a percentage of that money. Um, And it's fucking crazy. They're basically like the ghost version of Chris Hansen, who everyone thought that he was like the guy who literally was like running the show to catch a predator and personally just like setting up all these stings. When in reality, the show was created by just completely different people and he was just hired to be the host of it. And then he went off and split from the people because he was fired. And then he like has tried to reiterate on this concept over and over again that he really had nothing to do with. He was just a fucking journalist and to much, I guess, much less success on in his case because he sucks at it. Yeah, except for them, they like made a shitload of money off of doing this repeatedly over and over and over and over again. And that's also not to discount their like the money they made off of the fact that they turned the back of their house into a museum where they showed artifacts in air quotes from all of these mystery things, otherworldly things they were involved in. They would organize walking tours where they would like people would pay them to go ghost hunting with them. They would have be, you know, be paid speaking engagement fees to travel around and talk about like, I saw a Dracula once. It's crazy. Um <laughs> Something about picturing him saying that in a, at a speaking engagement. It's just hilarious to me. Eventually, things calm down and uh, Ed and Lorraine more or less retire. Uh, and then they both pass away. And Tony Spera, their son-in-law, takes over the family business of being this weird sideshow huckster. And he runs their YouTube channel now, the Ed and Lorraine Warren official YouTube channel. And it is so weird because it's him telling all of their stories, which he wasn't there for, but just like Ed and Lorraine told me about this one time when they did this stuff and like taking people around their old house and being like, look, this is a haunted photograph that Ed and Lorraine found at this place. Really strange. It's really strange, but it's 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 kind of mesmerizing. He does like live stream Q and A's and like he's just a vortex of anti charisma. But man, is it fascinating. Eventually, the Warrens fame and notoriety slipped somewhat into the background until in the 2010s, a confluence of events caused them to take center stage, which netted their estate large sums of money and also revealed their darkest secret. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Today we have something exciting to tell you about, and that's that we now have Mystery Treehouse Investigation Agency membership patches, three and a half inch patches that you can buy and put on jackets or sweater vests or normal vests or cowboy vests or hats that you just started wearing 
recently, or you could sew a patch onto a patch and then have that patch on a VHS copy of Patch Adams. And then you could cosplay as the character Patch, which is Wolverine's alias when he was in Madripoor running a nightclub. They're pretty cool. You've got an illustration of me and Dave as the Mystery Treehouse Investigation Agency. I've got a, a, a magnifying glass. Dave's got a flashlight drawn and colored by Dave. You can go to any of our websites and go to the store. You can go to heydavebaker.com. You can go to dapricerights.com where they're available. Or you can go to deepcutspod.com and go to the official merch store for Deep Cuts. Bacon and legs. Act 2. If you thought ghost IP mining was weird, buckle the fuck up. So, Andrew, this is a an article written for The Hollywood Reporter um, by Kim Masters and Ashley Cullen, which was posted December 13th, 2017. Uh, and the title is... War Over the Conjuring, The Disturbing Claims Behind a Billion Dollar Franchise. And then we have a subheading here that says, Illegal Spat Reveals the Real-Life Demonologists in the 1.2 billion grossing dollar horror movies may not have been nearly as pious as they're portrayed. Fans of the Conjuring horror movie franchise will be familiar with the romantic tale of Ed and Lorraine Warren, real-life married demonologists who claim their Catholic faith helped them fend off the forces of evil. In the trailer for the first film, Warner Brothers' New Line Division sold The Conjuring as, quote-unquote, based on the true story of the Warrens. But according to legal filings and recordings obtained by The Hollywood Reporter, it's possible that even the simple depiction of the Warrens as a devoted and pious couple might have stretched the truth past the breaking point. It appears the top studio executives were made aware just weeks after the first film opened in 2013 of allegations that, in the early 1960s, Ed Warren initiated a relationship with an underage girl with Lorraine's knowledge. Now in her 70s, Judith Let's just Penny- stop right there for a second. Let's stop right let's let let's stop right there. We just we gotta just we gotta just stop right there for just one second. I feel like you blew through that sentence. Ed Warren initiated a relationship with an underage girl with Lorraine's knowledge. I'm Chris Hansen, and I want you to have a seat over there. (laughs) You have not been summoned to this house because I have a poltergeist haunting my toaster. I'm Chris Hansen, and today, perhaps, Ed Warren, it's your soul that is the ghost. Dave, Lorraine Warren was a cuck. I'm sorry. Uh, I love it. All right. Feel feel free to keep going. Now in her 70s, Judith Penny has said in a sworn declaration that she lived in the Warren's house as Ed's lover for four decades. Four decades? Jesus. It is unclear whether Warner Brothers took any action in response to these allegations, but the sequel continued to portray them as a happy couple in a conventional marriage, not a weird pedophile swinger thing. Warner's declined to comment, but an attorney for the studio has asserted in court papers that a disgruntled author and a producer suing the studio over profits from the franchise are pushing the story of the Warrens' personal lives as part of a vendetta. Ed Warren died in 2006, and Lorraine Warren's attorney, Gary Barkin, says the family has no knowledge of the alleged conduct, and his client, now 90, is in declining health and unable to respond to the allegations. I mean, this is actually I'm making all these joking references to the Chris Hansen episode, but this sounds very similar to the Onision thing. 
that we talked about extensively in the Chris Hansen episode. Like an older male who carries on a underage relationship with a second girl with the permission of the significant other. Um, I, want, I just want to look up when she actually... I'm fairly certain Lorraine Warren is fucking dead no she's definitely dead but she was she was alive as of the first movie because there was like she consulted on it and there was like interviews for there was press interviews where she was like sitting with um she died april 18th 2019 yeah Movie marketers long have found value in claiming that films are based on fact, but there are no explicit rules governing how far filmmakers can deviate from the truth while still including based on a true story in advertisements. When challenges have arisen in the past, courts have given the studios a lot of latitude. Sometimes there is backlash against a film when its accuracy is questioned, as happened with Norman Jewison's The Hurricane or Catherine Bigelow's Zero Dark Thirty. Both obviously are more serious fact-based films than The Conjuring. Given the supernatural elements of The Conjuring films, it's fair to assume that not every fan believed everything shown on the screen was literally true. Skeptical or not, audience flocked to the movies. The Conjuring and its spinoffs have grossed $1.2 billion for Warners, profits that have spawned a veritable horror show of litigation over who owns the rights to the Warren stories. Another spinoff is in post-production, and a second sequel is in development. Ed Warren was a self-taught ghost hunter, while Lorraine put herself forward as a medium who would communicate with spirits. The Warrens didn't take fees for their work, but they enjoyed immense financial success nonetheless thanks to nine books, a busy lecture schedule, and consulting on films based on their exploits, including the 1979 and 2005 versions of the Amityville Horror. The original Conjuring film, set in the early 70s, tells the tale of the Warrens' dramatic rescue of a family residing in a Rhode Island farmhouse supposedly inhabited by the spirit of a long-deceased witch. From the start, the Warrens' romantic relationship is central, with Patrick Wilson playing Ed and Vera Farmiga as Lorraine. Do you remember what you said to me on our wedding night? Lorraine asks Ed at one point. You said that God brought us together for a reason, which is a really weird thing to say on a wedding night. But materials obtained by THR suggest that in real life, the Warrens' relationship was far from divine. Among them is a sworn declaration from Penny, who maintained that Ed, with his wife's knowledge, initiated an amorous relationship with her when she was 15. Penny, who had not been a party to any of the litigation over the Conjuring movies declined to comment. And then we're, there's a beneath that, there's a photo of Ed Warren and Penny at some point in the 1970s. And he's uh, holding a bunch of Polaroids, his arms around her waist, and he's looking at her like, hey, I'm not very charismatic, but I've got a turtleneck. Ed Warren was in his mid-30s when he allegedly met 15-year-old Penny. Having not yet gained enough fame as a self-trained demonologist to pay the bills in the early 1960s, Ed was working as a city bus driver in Monroe, Connecticut. Penny was a student at Central High School in the nearby town of Bridgeport who rode his bus. Jesus. The two began an amorous relationship. Penny said in a legal declaration she gave in November of 2014. According to that document, as well as newly obtained recordings of Penny's recollection of events, by 1963, she had moved into the Warrens' home. For the next 40 years, she said, she had a sexual relationship with Ed with Lorraine's knowledge. At first, Penny stayed in a bedroom directly opposite the one occupied by the married couple, but eventually she moved into an apartment built for her above the home. One night, he'd sleep downstairs, she said in a recording. One night, he'd sleep upstairs. For 40 years. Man. Even in 1963, a teenage girl did not move in with a married man without attracting notice. The year Penny was arrested after someone reported her relationship with Ed to local police. According to her November 2014 declaration, she spent a night in the North End prison in Bridgeport while police tried to persuade her to sign a statement admitting to the affair. Jesus, she had she went to jail for this? She went to jail for this? Fucked. 
fucked. My God, that is so fucked up. After Penny refused to cooperate, she was ordered by the court to report to a delinquent youth office for the next month. According to Penny's account, Ed picked her up from school every week and drove her to the mandated meetings. Penny has said Ed told her many times that she was the love of his life. The Warrens, according to her, presented her variously as a niece or poor girl whom they had taken in out of charity. In May of 1978, in her 30s, Penny became pregnant with Ed's child, she has said. In the declaration, she said Lorraine persuaded her to have an abortion because the birth of a child would become public and any scandal could ruin the Warrens' business. Though Lorraine has claimed to be a devout Catholic, Penny said her real God is money. In a tearful recording obtained by THR, Penny recalled, They wanted me to tell everyone that someone had come into my apartment and raped me, and I wouldn't do that. I was so scared. I didn't know what to do, but I had an abortion. The night they picked me up from the hospital after having it, they went out and lectured and left me alone. Jesus Christ, this is fucking insane. Penny also claimed Ed was sometimes abusive to Lorraine. Early on, she said, she witnessed him backhand his wife so hard she lost consciousness. Sometimes Ed would actually have to slap her across the face to shut her up, Penny said in one recording. Some nights I thought they were going to kill each other. Penny has said she helped Ed maintain his reputation as a ghost hunter. He claimed to have captured the white lady, quote-unquote, a ghost who supposedly haunts Union Cemetery in Easton, Connecticut, on tape in the summer of 1990 after camping out in the graveyard for a week. Penny claims Ed wanted to make a video that would show what the white lady would look like if she were spotted, so she took a page from every grade schooler's Halloween playbook and donned a white sheet for the filming. Lorraine's attorney Barkin tells THR that Judy and Tony Spira, the Warren's daughter and son-in-law, never saw any of the alleged conduct during the decades they spent with Ed, Lorraine, and Penny. The Warrens opened their home to Miss Penny when she was 18 and had nowhere else to live following a childhood neglect, writes Barkin in an email. During much of their career, Ed and Lorraine were on the road, working on cases and giving lectures, and Miss Penny lived at and watched their house. Uh-huh, 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 yeah. uh-huh, <laughs> this is like- yeah, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Wait a minute. Now that I think about it, none of this makes any sense at all. They also say Penny had a long-term boyfriend for much of that time, whom she eventually married, and the couple spent holidays with their family. The Spears believe Penny is now being manipulated, but Lorraine seems to have been intent on preventing any sordid aspects of her story from being portrayed on screen. Her deal with New Line to serve as consultant on or model for The Conjuring includes unusual restrictions. The films couldn't show her or her husband engaging in crimes, including sex with minors, child pornography, prostitution, or sexual assault. Like, that's like if somebody's like, okay, you can make this movie about me, but you can't have us watching child porn. Like, I'd be like, I wasn't planning on it. It was that was that uh, bacon and legs optioned this story first before Warner Brothers. All right, Ed, we really want to turn your life story about being the ghost hunters that my main man legs and I modeled our career on into a feature film. All right. But one condition. I can't be watching child porn in the movie. Not even for a second. Yeah. OK, you can't be. Wait, wait, what? We weren't planning on it. That's an insane thing to say. That really that speaks more about you than it does anything about this deal with this movie. Yeah, I just feel like, why would you bring that up if that's not exactly what you're worried about people uncovering? In fact, legs, my man, I think we just cracked the case. Edler and Warren are pedophiles. (laughs) Bacon and legs. Miami Nights. In the case of the ghost hunting pedophiles. We use some of that old-fashioned reverse psychology. Bacon, my man. I just think that anyone who would put specific clauses, like engaging in crimes, including sex with minors, child pornography, prostitution, 
or sexual assault is definitely guilty of those exact things. It's just not a normal thing that you would specifically request for those things to not be put in a movie about you. It seems like it'd be a given in 99.99% of situations that you wouldn't do that, let alone in a movie about religious ghost hunters. Yeah, the Venn diagram of religious ghost hunters and fucking children is pretty far apart. There's like nothing in the middle of that Venn. It's just two circles. There's literally 0% of those circles that are crossed. I'm pretty sure that requesting that your characters specifically not be depicted watching child porn in a movie is basically signing an admission of a crime that you can directly be used as evidence in a court of law to put you in jail for that exact crime. Yeah, that's called the Ed and Lorraine Warren Act. It triggers whenever someone says, I'm definitely not a pedophile in any contract. You immediately are investigated for being a pedophile. <laughs> <laughs> uh, neither the husband nor wife could be detected as participating in an extramarital sexual relationship <laughs> that feels even more specific it feels like you literally did that exact thing for like a majority of your life you are telegraphing so much right now that's like this is this is the ed and lorraine warren version of the oj simpson if i did it book yeah <laughs> Listen, you can make this movie, but under no circumstances can you ever shoot a scene where I'm just totally railing a girl while Lorraine is sitting there watching. You can never do that or I will not sign this. Look, you can never show me enjoying the carnal pleasures of a 15-year-old that I keep above my house in a special apartment fuck den that I built just to house said 15-year-old while Lorraine comes up and watches and jerks off. You can never do that. Don't even think about it. We're good Christian people. If you do that, ooh, this, this pen is going away. It's going right in the pocket. I will never sign any contract unless there's a specific clause that says that you will never show me fucking enjoying the late night pleasures of having sweet, sweet carnal enjoyments with a fucking 15 year old. I, I think the death, I'm not a death penalty proponent, but I feel like this might be the one case in which I'm going to say pull the lever. <laughs> Listen, if this movie turns out to be a churning character study about a religious couple who are existing financially off of a decades-long grift where they pretend like they hunt ghosts only to use those fake stories as pitches for a fucking film option to get rich off of movie rights, but then secretly in the background, the husband is carrying on a 40-year-long relationship with a 15-year-old girl that he found on a bus he was driving while the wife allows it because she wants to be rich off of this grift. I will never sign off on it. <laughs> Look, all I'm saying is that if you try to bring me a contract and that contract is spelled any other way than cuckold, I will not sign that contract because you know what they say. You can't spell contract without cuckold. Ed, I don't, I don't think, I mean, that's not, the, not all those letters are in, I don't, Ed, that's not how that works. No, you listen to me, fancy pants Hollywood lawyer man. I'm from Connecticut. We know how we do it there. I was a bus driver for 40 years when I picked up 15-year-olds. I know how life goes. I think you've rabbit season, duck seasoned yourself into forgetting the plot and admitting your crimes openly. 
Look, I'm not going to say that I enjoy 15-year-olds and keeping them low-key against their will in a perpetual cycle of low education and financial dependency in a private cell above my house. I would never say that. I know exactly what I'm doing. I know where I'm at. I'm at this fucking rinky-dink lawyer office in the middle of nowhere, Los Angeles, and I hate it, and I want to go back to Connecticut, the land of the free, home of the brave, America, fuck yeah. Also, I just miss my girlfriend. I mean, what? I just, I just want to go see my daughter. That, that was the, you, you could have, I mean, you could have ended it in the beginning, but certainly you could have ended it before that last sentence. I just miss my daughter and my, my, my sweetheart son-in-law, Tony Spera, who is definitely not in on this grift and definitely will not prosper for decades to come off of our name and has definitely no knowledge of any sort of pedophilic weird relationship that I have. I literally walked in the room and said, hey, Ed. <laughs> I know how you lawyers are. You always get things twisted in people's brains. I know how you are. <laughs> I'm glad we're I'm glad we're boy detective werewolf hunters by night and high school students by day and then lawyers by like lunch time ish. Wait, what was the middle thing? You you go to high school? You take the bus? <laughs> God no. <laughs> I need an adult. Which bus route do you take? I my I'm rich. My parents drive me. You ever you ever you you go to Bridgeport? You go to you ever you ever go to Bridgeport? We're in Los Angeles. Yeah, I know, but like you know, you ever you ever make you ever, you ever make it over to Bridgeport? They got nice schools over there. If you ever need me to drive you? I used to be a bus driver for forty years. All right, here I signed for you with your own hand while you were saying this. The movie's gonna get made. Just get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Conjuring. You're gonna be rich. Leave me alone. Talent attorney Jill Smith says she had never seen specific language barring such depictions, though individuals selling rights to their stories sometimes restrict portrayals. Soon after the original Conjuring movie opened, producer Tony DeRosa Grund sent an email informing top Warners and New Line executives that the film was a far cry from the advertised true story of the Warrens. DeRosa Grund now locked in a legal battle with Warners over profits from the movies after he claims he was unfairly shut out of the sequels and spinoffs, said in his September 2013 email that a woman close to the Warrens had seen the movie and was mortified as to the inaccurate portrait of the relationship between Ed and Lorraine Warren. Among those copied on the email were Warners chairman Kevin Sujihara and marketing chief Sue Kroll, as well as Toby Emmerich, then president of New Line, outside counsel Michael O'Connor and in-house attorney Craig Alexander. It is unclear whether Warners responded. Not only was the Warrens' marriage a far cry from the one portrayed on screen, DeRosa Grund wrote in his email, but their daughter, also named Judy and portrayed in the original film by Sterling Jarens, had lived not with her parents, but with Lorraine's mother. Penny said she was the only young girl living in the Warrens' house. Ed was a pedophile, a sexual predator, and a physically abusive husband, wrote DeRosa Grund. Lorraine enabled Ed to do this. She knowingly allowed this illegal relationship to continue for 40 years. They lied to the public. I mean, it wasn't illegal the whole 40 years, but certainly in the beginning. That email was sent after the first film, but 2016's The Conjuring 2 only amplified the loving relationship between the Warrens. At one point, Ed adoringly sings Can't Help Falling in Love to Lorraine, and the film ends with a callback to that moment, 
as Lorraine puts the record on and the two slow dance in their living room. The Warren's straightforward earnestness fuels the film, more so than their Catholicism, wrote Sherry Linden in THR's review of The Conjuring 2. Amid the chills and thrills, the childhood anxieties and vulnerability, James Wan has made a celebration of the demonologist duo marriage. In this September 2013 email, DeRosa Grund wrote that he had assured Penny he could temper the romantic relationship shown between Ed and Lorraine in the sequels. He warned the executives that Penny might tell her story to the media. Once this comes out, do you think Patrick Wilson or Vera Farmiga would knowingly play Ed and Lorraine ever again, he asks? The answer is no one would. No amount of spin from any crisis PR firm can ever fix this once the truth comes out. Penny has never told her story to the media, but it nearly surfaced as part of the sprawling legal fight over the films. Author Gerard Brittle claims in a pending lawsuit that the Conjuring franchise rips off his 1980 book, The Demonologist. Brittle is suing the Warrens and New Line for a staggering $900 million. The studio has argued that its films are protected from copyright claims because, quote-unquote, no one has a monopoly to tell stories or make movies about true-life figures and events. But Brittle counters that the studio is aware that the portrayal of the Warrens in his book turned out to be far from truthful. Brittle claims he believed the stories the Warrens told him, but later found out they were concocted. Explosive allegations about the Warrens' relationship were included in an October 2015 letter to New Line Outside Counsel O'Connor from attorney Sanford Dow. Mr. Warren has been accused of being cut from the exact same cloth as convicted Penn State football child molester Jerry Sandusky and the accused sexual predator Bill Cosby, wrote Dow. Mrs. Warren, in both condoning and covering up their heinous acts, is as complicit as her husband. Dow threatened to add these claims in litigation against New Line unless the studio agreed to a settlement. The proposed deal suggested terms to resolve not only brittle and DeRosa Grun's issues with the studio, but also Penny's, though she was not a party to the settlement discussions. According to the letter, Penny would transfer her life rights to New Line and sign a confidentiality agreement in exchange for $150,000, the same amount Lorraine initially received for The Conjuring. The settlement didn't happen, and explicit allegations have not been included in any litigation against the studio, but buried in a 355-page lawsuit that Brittle filed in March was a claim that Penny was ready to testify about the epic falsity of the family dynamic in the films. The lawsuit said Penny would disclose the absolute charade of this family dynamic as told by the Warrens and as depicted as fact in all of the defendants' movies. The true family dynamic was known at the highest executive levels of both New Line and Time Warner. The suit said the studio ignored the truth to protect its billion-dollar franchise. Legal experts say that Warners and New Line did not necessarily do anything wrong by allowing so heavily a fictionalized portrayal of the Warrens' relationship. At the end of each film, Warners includes a standard disclaimer reading, Dialogue and certain events and characters contained in the film were created for the purpose of dramatization. As for Penny, now in her 70s, it seems she has never received a cent from The Conjuring movies. Though she clearly has no love for Lorraine, she still seems to have fond feelings for Ed. Though their relationship ended in 2003 and she subsequently married, she remained friendly with Ed until his death in 2006. She still seems to be pondering her past and wondering about Lorraine's role as well as her own. As I'm older now, I can't even fathom why Lorraine let me stay there, she said in an October recording. Lots of times I think about, why did I do this? Why did I screw up my life like this? Sometimes I get angry thinking about it. How so much has been taken away from me? It's fucking dark. Yeah, I mean, there's there's like a whole fucking world of things to unpack in that. Just just that just that one person and her part of this whole story. Fucking dark. It also it seems it seems weird that in this this legal. I mean, I guess I guess it makes sense because it's a legal proceeding and that's more of a legal route to take. But it seems weird that they're focusing on this, like whether they depicted them accurately in the movie thing, because it's like does I don't that doesn't feel like it's really the problem or the point like movies take huge liberties with presenting factual information all the time I mean 
fucking Fargo has a thing at the beginning of the movie that says this is based on a true story, even though the movie is not a true story at all. It's completely fictionalized. And they put that on there just as a just to create a, a, a set of a, a mood, basically. Uh, like, I don't feel like there's any kind of issue with completely wildly fabricating details of a quote unquote based on a true story story. The issue is just that they're making movies about somebody who's a pedophile and depicting him as this fucking righteous hero. Yeah. Yeah. And also the fact that like. Also, the fact that that their whole thing is this weird fucked up grift where they just like go places, take advantage of people and then make these weird house of card narratives to sell books and movies. It's so weird. It's so fucking weird. It's really weird. And it, and it's also it's it's interesting because we've talked about this bef- we've talked about this before a lot just in regular life. This IP farming thing that people do where it's like not that it's not that it's like easy or the easiest thing in the world, but it's easier to get a if you have the right connections, it's easier to get a book deal. Or if you're an established writer or whatever, you can sort of latch on. You can you can develop a grift where you write books or you make comics or whatever that are explicitly just made so that they can be optioned into movies so that you can make money off of the movie. So it's like. You're really not writing the book or the comic as its own work that you want people to read. You're just making it as a pitch document so that you can have rights over an option for a movie to be made so you can make millions of dollars. And this 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 is done increasingly more and more by a lot of people as it's become this weird little like get rich scheme thing that that has cropped up in the last, you know, 15 years or so. And, you know, notably, you know, have you have Mark Millar, who his entire career is just that like that's just that's just what he does. His books are exclusively made to be optioned into movies. Um, There was, you know, that movie Cowboys and Aliens was that where they literally just made it to make it into a movie. Um, we, I, I referenced Ready Player One earlier where Ernest Klein was like a screenwriter who was trying to sell the Ready Player One as a movie. He couldn't sell it. So he was like, oh, I'll just write a book and I'll get I'll get a book deal and then I'll sell the option for the book and get it made into a movie. And this is like and I and we talk about that a lot. And I talk about we talk about how much just from an artistic standpoint, I just hate that concept so much because it's just cynically cranking out garbage to make money. Um, And just the idea that like some, a, a book has been published that's like wasn't even published with the intention of anybody enjoying it is just such a cynical concept to me. But this is even weirder because it's like it's not like writing a book or like writing making a comic or whatever like that's one thing but like they like in order to do the same grift they like staged like fake fucking hauntings like that, that that's going way out of your way to option a movie. Yeah, it's a, it's it's really a it's a it's an interesting little like cottage industry where like i don't know of many other people who their means of making a living is this bizarre thing within a thing within a thing you know because it's not just like a medium thing where you're ripping somebody off providing them this in air quotes service that you're really just lying to them like you can't contact the great beyond and so you come up with cold reading techniques to discern characteristics about people and because they're in 
emotionally fragile states, you're able to extract information from them and, and they don't forget the things you got wrong. They only remember the things you got right. And yeah, medium mediums are confidence men with like a spooky twist. Yeah. And that's basically what Ed and Lorraine Warren were. But it's not just that. They're like, okay, so we'll be con men for free, but the thing we're going to leave with is your story, which is actually worth millions if you plug it into the right ecosystem. Like there's like a math equation that they figured out where it's like a story that has X number of spooky and X number of like young woman. It's like young woman plus scary thing plus dark house times ghostwriter making a novel times uh, lawyers connections in Hollywood equals within five years we'll have a movie deal. You know what I mean? Like it's so strange. A weird formula, but it like it jumps over out of the fucking world of writing books and doing paperwork and math and jumps out into like real world, real life where they're just like at mansions just being like there's a ghost and this is a movie and that's a movie and this is a movie and that's a movie like i'm just so curious like they they literally traveled the world doing this so like what was the behind the scenes meetings like where the two of them were like okay we're gonna spend four thousand dollars to go to fucking england to camp out in a ghost graveyard you know haunted graveyard for two weeks and then we're gonna leave saying that we caught this photo of a ghost or we saw this or we recorded that and then that will probably be able to sell for about ten thousand dollars for an option and then the option mm, uh, within three years we think we'll probably have a tv show which will net us three hundred thousand dollars so it's almost like they're gambling you know they've got like all these different little hustles that they're dumping like We'll spend $3,000 on this one and we'll spend $100 on that one. We'll spend $2,000 on this one. And then they're just like seeing which of these stories grow in the cultural imagination and spawn these larger adaptations. So bizarre. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, I, I just can't, I can't get over that as part of this grift. Part of it involves like make believe kayfabe ghost hunts and pedophilia. Any closing? Somehow we, that. <laughs> Yeah. Any uh, any closing thoughts? Yeah, I don't know. It, uh, it 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 taints it a little bit because I mean, it taints it a lot of bit. Not not a little bit. Yeah, I was gonna say. It, also, I feel like that's poorly chosen. Does it really taint it? Because taint. Mm-hmm. Ed Ed it, Ed Warren's taint. Ed Warren's taint. That's the next. That's the sequel to it's for Hoven's toupee, Gilliam's gumbo, Ed Warren's taint. <laughs> yeah, a, a Ed Warren's taint is when you. When someone pulls an Ed Warren's taint, it's when they have a a very public facing image and then there's not one weird turn where it's like this person is very pious in public, but actually a freak in in private or, you know, this person is uh, purporting to be one way, but they're another way in, in private. There's that, but then there's another double helix and the end of that double helix, which is just a completely unexpected turn. That area is the Ed Warren's taint. You know, these Christian superhero ghost hunters that go around just like stopping evil from invading our our mortal plane. Well, actually, they're grifters and completely fucking scamming you. And then also they're pedophiles. Just (laughs) just in case that you wanted that bonus. When you say (laughs) 
that way. It's just so crazy. It's so unthinkable. Like, fact really is stranger than fiction because it's just so out of this world. And even if the pedophilia stuff isn't true, like, we don't know that it's true. It's, you know, these disgruntled lawyer people, this lawsuit, this woman saying these things that lived with them for 40 years. Like, it's true. But if we don't know, allegedly, it's, you know, it's allegedly true that Ed Warren was a pedophile who basically kidnapped a 15 year old girl when he was a children's bus driver. Um, We don't know that that's true, right? That could be completely fabricated, right? But what we do know is that they fucking lie about all of this ghost shit and get it turned into movies. And that in and of itself is so fucking crazy. Yeah, it's... But but yeah, I mean, and that that part is the part that I I kind of love. I mean that that I've I've always sort of it's like it's like the thing you love to hate. Where you're just you know I'm I, we're both into like we've talked about it a lot, but we're we're both into like paranormal, supernatural, conspiracy theory stuff. And then it's even makes it even better when there's like this added layer of like these weird, grimy grifter people doing these weird back alley schemes. That's the part that I love. But then it's just like, but then it's just like a full, it's just like a stop, stop sign, stop sign. You can't enjoy this because there's another, there's the Ed Warren's taint is, is, is going to get you. Yeah, You don't want to touch that taint. No, you don't want to get anywhere near it. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. This has been Deep Cuts. If you'd like to uh, find me on the internet, you can go to heydavebaker.com or you can find my comics, Fuck Off Squad, Action Hospital, Seven's Reckoning, Night Hunters. Uh, please go out and buy Night Hunters and Star Trek Voyager 7's Reckoning. They're both in comic book stores right now. It's pretty cool. Uh, and uh, you can also find our new and exciting uh, Mystery Treehouse Investigation Agency team member patches, which are finely embroidered and they're um, really cool looking and they have both Andrew and I's faces on them holding flashlights and magnifying glasses and boy detectiving around. Yeah, they're really, they're really cool. They, if you uh, just to just to give a, a an image of them, um, if you've seen the sort of the cover to the Deep Cuts podcast, um, our our uh, portrait of Dave and I um, standing against like a oil painting dark forest, and uh, Dave's lighting the way with a flashlight, and I'm holding a magnifying glass. It's a, an illustrated version of that uh, uh, drawn by Dave, drawn and colored by Dave. Um, and uh, it's a circular patch that has that that illustration in the middle. And then on the around it, it says Mystery Treehouse Investigation Agency. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And no, I was just going to say that we still have a few repairs to make to the treehouse since Charles Wexler Weller drove that fucking spaceship into the side of our goddamn treehouse. So all yeah all 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 of the funds go to repairing the treehouse um and once that's once that's fully repaired then we can go we can be back up and operational we can start solving crimes again and uh well, if you have a patch then we can call on you as our as our uh as our partners in in in, uh, in crime solving yeah junior 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 deputy junior deputies in the mystery treehouse investigation agency war on mistruths and boring ex- explainers. Andrew, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me uh, 
just in some old Victorian New England house pretending like a little girl is speaking in tongues to me and uh, interpreting it as I pull on a string that makes a painting in the corner of the room rock back and forth and then strategically step on a certain plank on the floor that makes the house creak in a way that sounds like it's coming from a different area of the house. Um, and you can also find me at dapricerights.com where you can pick up my book, Deadbolt AI Private Eye, or you can also pick up our new Mystery Treehouse Investigation Agency patches, which are also available on my website in my store, or you can also get them at deepcutspod.com at the, on, in the uh, official Deep Cuts merch store. All three places you can get them. No, no particular reason why you would choose one over the other. They're just all in those, all those places. And in closing, I would just like to say... The one on Dave's store is three pennies more expensive because he's a fucking dick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in closing, I would just like to say that uh, it's kind of a bummer that these crazy grifty peeps got to be so pedo-y because I was really into them for a hot minute. I watched all these fucking videos uh, that Tony Sparrow posted on that YouTube's page and I was like, these, these people are so amazing. I love them. They're so kooky. They're so idiosyncratic. I can't believe these humans exist. This is, I love this so much. And then I found out some of this other stuff and I was like, I hey. And then I got Ed Warren's Tainted. Today we got a couple more Napster episode covers to play. Uh, we have two more covers by Just Andy, who are doing a cover of a chorus a day leading up to the release of their album, Big Chorus. And we also have a cover of the Berries and Mush song by Jordan Phillips, who picked up his rusty old alto sax that he hadn't played in a while, went into his basement and figured out how to play it. So check it out. Why would you take me out to
Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content. The incidental music for this episode was created by D. Catalano, whose music can be found at wekeepoddhours.bandcamp.com. And the Dead Boy Detectives.